Music is as instructive and poignant as any historical artifact in telling us what was happening in that moment in time. When it comes to political and social movements, songs can lead as well as follow. That is, these movements can inspire incredible songs of protest, but incredible songs of protest can also shape and mold public opinion and collective consciousness. Sometimes songs have the power to dismantle systems of social injustice. This episode is about those types of songs. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. And on this podcast, we explore questions that people have been debating for ages. Questions about music. And life. We're songwriters, musicians, music fans. And in the 25 years we've been friends, we've been practitioners of the unanswerable. But today, we'll delve into a new question, and we'll talk to some smart people. And we'll come up with the answer. Okay, Clint. What's today's question? Today's question is, what is the greatest protest song of all time? That's the age-old question. Clint, the songs we're talking about are responses to war, political injustice, gender inequality, struggles for civil rights, and more. I'm really excited about this episode. Definitely. Can't wait. Let's dive in. What do you got? Well, I just want to first talk about just the protest song in general is the weapon of the songwriter against the man. Mm-hmm. It's like anytime there's some social injustice, there's a songwriter there ready to take up the pen and the guitar and write a song about it. And it's been going on forever since the dawn of time. I'm sure cavemen were, you know, banging on drums. Playing air guitar. Like, yeah, like... <laughs> Don't take my meat. Uh, so don't take my meat. That was their issue of the time. I mean, why? Yeah. yeah, it's a very big topic. That after doing a ton of research, yeah, I've realized not much has changed. It seems like it's the same song being written, yeah, protesting the same thing. There's like a handful of protest songs, right? And there are masters of it. Yeah. And so my first is. Maybe one of the greatest protest bands of all time, and that is Rage Against the Machine. Now, Rage Against the Machine, it just says it in the name. They're not hiding anything. They're not trying to be something they're not. And the song that I chose is Killing in the Name. Killing in the Name of... Which was actually the first single from their debut album. Which is incredible to think, right? Incredible. The first song they put out is completely based on the Rodney King incident. Right. First of all, Rage Against the Machine was a band from L.A. So they formed in 1991. It's uh, Zach De La Rocha, bassist Tim Comerford, yep. guitarist Tom Morello, and drummer Brad Wilk. What I found interesting from doing a bunch of research about them is that Zach, the singer, was born in Long Beach to a Mexican-American father, and his grandfather was a Mexican revolutionary. Huh. The other interesting fact is that Tom Morello, who graduated from Harvard, yeah. smart, smart dude, his father was a Kenyan diplomat, and his great-uncle was Kenya's first elected president, wow. Tom Morello. 
also an incredibly unique guitar player. We'll get yeah. into that. Yeah. So Killing the Name was released on November 2nd in 1992. So let's get into this Rodney King thing. Rodney King, March 3rd, 1991, gets pulled over, but then eludes the police. Go goes on this drive, you know, they're chasing him and finally get him. He's drunk. They pull him out of the car and they beat him to half to death. Like senseless. Like fractured his skull eleven times and all caught on camera. All caught on camera. And this was like the first, I feel like, of those what has become this chorus that just keeps happening in America where it's caught on film and and that degree of over the top unnecessary violence by the police. It was an open and shut case. It was on film. Yeah. It was on film. Yeah, come on. There like, was no justification no. for 13 cops or whatever it was no. kicking Beating this guy. this guy. Yeah. So after that, they had the trial and all the policemen got acquitted. And what we know followed is the L.A. riots of 1992, which were the biggest riots in America since the civil rights movement. I mean, right. 30 years. Right. It was a major ordeal. I remember watching it on TV. Like, I remember right. pretty vividly. I mean, I was old enough and remember it. It was also the early days of CNN. Yeah, you're right. So, Rage wrote this song. And the way the music mixes with the lyrics creates this, like, frenzy. I'm just going to read the lyrics. Some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. Some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. Now that is, there's no, there's no metaphor there. That is, some some police police. are racist. Yes. Yes. Period. And then it ends with, F you, I won't do what you tell me. 16 times in a row, just him screaming it in the mic. But that mixed with the guitar riff, which, interesting story about the guitar riff, Tom Morello wrote it while giving a guitar lesson. And so he got out his little recorder and recorded it. He's like, hold on a hold second. On a second. I got recorded the riff. And that's, that's how that that's came incredible. about. Pretty cool. You talked about Tom Morello being an interesting, unique guitarist. Yeah. Say a little more about that. He's not technically super proficient in the same way as like an Eddie Van Halen or a, anyone really. Like his style is completely based on sound. So his sonic sensibility is so different. So he'll unplug his guitar and stick the quarter-inch cable onto the pickup to make sounds. Or he'll move his toggle switch, which is changing from the rhythm to the neck pickup, and have one volume down. So he gets this cutoff effect like... And then he'll have delay on. He's just a very unique player. He he doesn't shred. Right. I recently saw a performance of this song by Rage Against the Machine from a festival in Europe in 1993 and they show Tom Morello's pedal board and it's just like a tuner and like three pedals. Yeah. And a hundred thousand people losing their minds. Like it's incredible. It's in, it's frightening, right? Like up it, front, it the, is a mosh pit of. Use the word frenzy. It is a frenzy. It is a frenzy. And he talks about that. Tom Morello talks about when they play this song and he looks out in the crowd He's like, it is pinnacle experience. This is an example of a band that I really appreciate, but I don't listen to. I agree. I listen to it when I need to get fired up. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I like this song and I like a number of songs. 
but you're not an angry dude. And we're talking about protest songs, and yeah. rage is an essential element of the protest songs. Yes. And it's interesting that each of these examples we're talking about start from a place of rage or indignation and outrage. Mm-hmm. These guys channel that rage in a really visceral sense. Yep. And I'm glad they're there because they're keeping it in check for all of us, right? right. They're providing a service right. to keep this in the consciousness of the world. Do you remember the cover of this album? Yeah. Of the Buddhist monk? Yeah, burning. Right? Burning himself. Just that visual. Before you hear any of the music. You know something's coming. You know, just the thought of this Buddhist monk. And I think it's from 1963. It It was a Vietnamese monk who was protesting his own government's intolerance of Buddhism. I remember when I was 14 or 15 and this album came out, seeing that album cover and it that just the visual had, a, had an incredible impact on me. All right. So that is my first. And that's high in the running for greatest of all time. That one's hard to beat, to be honest. Clint, let me take you back to May 4th, 1970. Kent State University. Students in Ohio had gathered for a peace rally opposing the expansion of U.S. involvement into the Vietnam War. Five days earlier, President Nixon had announced the so-called Cambodian incursion, in which U.S. combat forces had moved into neutral Cambodia. By May 4th, there had already been five days of protests on campus. And on this day, an estimated 2,000 students gathered at the university's main quad. The Ohio National Guard was called to disperse the crowd. Eyewitnesses reported a line of guardsmen suddenly getting on their knees and firing onto the crowd. Chrissy Hind, the future lead singer of The Pretenders, she was a student there, and she was at the protest and saw the whole thing go down. In her autobiography, she describes a scene. I heard the tat-tat-tat-tat sound, and I thought it was fireworks. An eerie sound fell over the common. Then a young man's voice, they effing killed somebody. In all, 13 students were shot. Four of them died. Now, at the same time, 2,300 miles away in Los Angeles, the supergroup Crosby, Stills, and Nash had recently added Neil Young, to become CSNY. Neil was Steven's old bandmate from Buffalo Springfield. And they had a song in the charts at that moment, Teach Your Children. Teach your children well Their father's hell Did slowly go by David Crosby was with Neil Young and showed him the Life magazine cover that depicted a wounded student gasping for air, tended to by other students. Neil Young apparently disappeared for a few hours and came back with the song to play for Crosby. Graham Nash remembers getting a call from Crosby that afternoon saying, book the studio, we've got to record this song tomorrow. So they went into the record plant in Hollywood on May 21st, 1970, and they recorded two songs in that session. Stephen Stills' song, Find the Cost of Freedom, which I love. Oh my God, we've done that one together. Totally. That's a great one. Find 
That became the B-side to Neil Young's Ohio. One notable thing about this song, Clint, the fact that Neil Young calls out Nixon by name. Crosby later said, that was the bravest thing I ever heard. Not even Dylan had name-dropped presidents in his protest songs. Because of the direct challenge to the Nixon administration, AM radio wouldn't play the song. But the song found an audience on FM and college radio stations. The song was released just weeks after the massacre that inspired it. That's part of what makes this song so incredible. It was a visceral response, 1970s equivalent to live streaming. The American counterculture seized on the song as an anthem, and it catapulted CSNY into the fore of American political folk rock. From the event to writing to release, just a couple of weeks. Interesting side note. I mentioned Chrissy Hine was there at Kent State during the protest. Another future famous singer... Jerry Casale of the band Devo. He's the guy that wrote the song Whip It. Whoa. I say whip it. Whip it good. He was there and witnessed the shooting as well. He said, all I can tell you is that it completely and utterly changed my life. I was a white hippie boy, and then I saw exit wounds from M1 rifles out of the backs of two people I knew. Final note on these guys. I mentioned Buffalo Springfield, which was Stephen Stills and Neil Young's band a few years earlier. Stephen Stills wrote the song For What It's Worth, one of my favorite protest songs. Another one we've done. Another one that you and I have done a bunch. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly... I always assumed the song was a war protest song. But it's not. Local residents and businesses around what we now call the Sunset Strip weren't happy that there were so many young people gathering in places like the Whiskey-A-Go-Go and Pandora's Box. So they lobbied Los Angeles County to pass new ordinances that would prevent being on the street past 10 p.m. So on November 12, 1966, about a thousand young demonstrators, including Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda, gathered to protest the ordinance. Scuffles between the police and protesters broke out, and that inspired... The song. What? Inspired by what he saw, Stephen Stills wrote, For What It's Worth. It's powerful and timeless, but it's rooted in something a lot less shocking than the war or Kent State shooting. Huh. But was then co-opted. But then was co-opted. For a movement. As a movement. Yeah. Right. Against war. Like, it feels like an anti-war song. Absolutely. I had no idea about that. I just assumed it was Vietnam. Huh? 
Good one. My next one okay. is also a song that was misconstrued. So my next one is Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. Ooh, so here's one. one that on face value, if you just listen to the chorus, you think this is an anthem for America, like proud to be an American in the USA and you're psyched right right but and, really and it, it's him in front of a giant American flag right and he's wearing jeans and a bandana and a bandana yeah. like he is all American And yet, and yet, when you read the lyrics, you realize it's actually a criticism of America. It's a condescending look at the way Vietnam vets were treated when they returned. So it's about a working class man who, in Springsteen's words, was facing a spiritual crisis in which a man is left lost. It's like he has nothing left to tie him into society anymore. He's isolated from the government, isolated from his job, isolated from his family to the point where nothing makes sense. That is who Bruce is talking about. Mm. Yeah. Give us some of the lyrics. So, got in a little hometown jam, so they put a rifle in my hand, sent me off to a foreign land to go and kill the yellow man, born in the USA. Basically, it's this guy who goes off to war, comes back to America after doing the service for his country. It should have come home to these cheers and thank you for your service but these guys were just completely shunned shunned they were criticized even as baby killers right let's talk about bruce for a second so bruce obviously he's an american singer songwriter from new jersey he's the boss yep that's his name the boss which tells you something about him right off the top he's the king of new jersey the pride of blue collar america right so he sold more than 150 million records worldwide making him one of the best selling music artists of all time he's won 20 grammys two golden globes an academy award and a tony award he hasn't won an emmy so he's not an egot but he's a rock and roll hall of famer songwriter hall of famer kennedy centered honors i mean the guy has done everything that you can do and he has a podcast with obama boom <laughs> mic drop <laughs> so he's done 20 studio albums born in the usa was the name of the album was his seventh and most acclaimed, uh, released in 1984, the single Born in the USA peaked at number nine on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. But Born in the USA is one of the most misunderstood songs of all time. When President Ronald Reagan was campaigning, he used Born in the USA as his theme song. For his re-election for campaign. For his re-election campaign. And I quote from Ronald Reagan, well... America's future rests in a thousand... Sorry. That's pretty good. Well, America's future rests in a thousand dreams inside your hearts. It rests in the message of hope in the songs of a man so many young Americans admire, New Jersey's own Bruce Springsteen. Well, needless to say, Bruce was pissed. He's right. like, you totally missed the point of the song. Right. It's interesting. Maybe it's a topic for another episode. The, the most misunderstood or most misinterpreted songs... Certainly born in the USA, you're right. Like so easy if you're if you're not listening closely to what's being said, you could think it should replace the Star Spangled right. Banner. Totally. Completely missing the point of the song. Boy, that's kind of 
genius when you think about it, right? To yeah. be able to get a song into... It's a bait and switch. Yeah. You know another song like this hmm. is Neil Young's Keep On Rockin' in the Free World. You're right. It is. Like people are like, keep on rocking in, in the, the free, free world. world. Yeah. America. But I think actually, if you read the lyrics... It's exactly the same as this. It's literally almost the same thing. One of the verses is, I see a woman in the night with a baby in her hand. There's an old street light near a garbage can. And now she put the kid away and she's gone to get a hit. She hates her life and what she's done to it. There's one more kid that'll never go to school, never get to fall in love, never get to be cool. on rocking in the free world is the most biting line after that that you don't get until you get it right it's exactly it's the exactly same. the same it's thing. exactly the same you're like all these terrible things born in the USA rocking in the free world it's a great way to do a protest song I think alright Clint we have a new segment We're grateful to our listeners for keeping us humble. And we've got a segment called Rich and Clint are Boneheads. (laughs) Rich and Clint are Boneheads. Though we might, every once in a while, string together a few thoughtful sentences. (laughs) Few and far between. We're generally Boneheads. (laughs) And we're not trying to come off as anything but Boneheads. So in the last episode, we said a couple Bonehead things. Okay. Okay. Maybe more than a couple, but we're going to address two of them. (laughs) First, when we were talking about Baby It's Cold Outside, you and I didn't know how to pronounce the name of the writer. Well, his name is actually Frank... Lesser? Lesser. This is a well-known legend of Broadway. The guy who wrote Guys and Dolls. Now, Broadway's a little in my blind spot. But this is like saying Rodgers and Hammerstein... Or Cole Porter or Andrew Lloyd Weber. Weber. (laughs) In other words, we're boneheads. Yeah. Rich and Second. Second. When we were talking about do they know it's Christmas, I suggested it was potentially the most culturally insensitive song. In part because they don't celebrate Christmas in Ethiopia. Well, Ethiopia is actually majority Christian country. So (laughs) some might say it's one of the cradles of Christianity. (laughs) Going back to the earliest days of the religion. Now, I am undoubtedly a bonehead, but I actually know this. In fact, Emperor Haile Selassie, the leader of Ethiopia through much of the 20th century, was known as the Lion of Judah. And we're going to talk about him in a second. During the famine of the mid-80s, the majority of deaths from the famine were from the Tigray population, which is, according to the recent census, 95.6% Christian. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, maybe the question, do they know it's Christmas time? They did. They did. (laughs) Turns out they did. But the most important point here, Clint... Mm -hmm. Is that we are boneheads. Okay, I'm with you. Rich and Clint Clint. Yes. Our old buddy, 
the incredible and talented songwriter Will Evans reached out to us last week. He's been listening to the podcast and he said, guys, how about an episode about protest songs? So we actually have him to thank for this episode. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Will. Will is an incredible songwriter, great voice, former frontman of the independent band Barefoot Truth. What can, what can you say about Will? Well, Will is one of the most talented people I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, the guy can do every instrument. Right. He's incredible at everything. He's a great surfer. He's a dad. I mean, he's got a lot going for him. Welcome to the home of the day and of the dollar bill. Cups overflowing. And if you don't know him, you should. You really should. Let's call. Okay. Richie. Will, you're on with me and Clint. Hello, fellas. What is happening? Welcome to the age-old question. It really is amazing to be here. Thank you for having me. So you inspired us. You suggested this topic, and we're running with it. And we want to ask you, what is the best protest song of all time? Okay, so this is like a loaded question. We could easily pick a decade and, you know, every decade has its, like, standouts. So I was having a really hard time narrowing it down to even three songs. But let me just run through what I've got. And okay. then I think you guys are going to – I think you guys are going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank, you, thank you are. And I might, I might help you out. One is Fortunate Son by Credence. released at the height of Vietnam when thousands of boys were at the bottom of the economic strata and were being drafted and sent to the front lines. While, you know, the sons of the very rich, i.e. Trump, uh, were shielded with exemptions. And so this song like dramatically emphasized that disparity between the haves and have-nots. So I, I thought that was a notable tune to, to throw into the mix, especially in that 60s, 70s realm when so much conflict and, and heated protests were happening. You mentioned Donald Trump. I I know John Fogarty issued a cease and desist against Trump because he was using that at, at his rallies. And and, totally. and John Fogarty was like, wait a minute, this song is about, <laughs> about privi- privileged, <laughs> privileged boys that don't have to go to war and people who avoid paying taxes. That is what Donald Trump is. Totally. Yeah. No, and, and, and you know, that one also just hit really close to home because three of my uncles were drafted and... My father was the last of the three. They grew up in Barrie, Vermont. Father was a quarry miner and, you know, first generation immigrant from Canada. And that was just typical that families with many kids and and there were seven total, but the other two siblings were under the age of 10 at the time. So three of the older boys all got drafted. They were the unfortunate sons. This song is... You know how there are certain Vietnam movies that like stick in your head, like the end from Apocalypse, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Yeah. This song was it? Was it Forrest Gump? Forrest, Forrest Gump. Gump. Yeah, like that. Yes, a very With the helicopter. Yes, yeah. It's a very Bear. powerful moment with that guitar riff. Yeah, totally. 
And that's one thing we've talked about so far is that it's amazing to have a protest song with such a catchy, memorable hook, right? Like it's serving two purposes as being a, just a super popular, catchy, singable song, as well as really digging at the heart of what's going on in America. Right. And it was amazing that they utilized the pop sensibilities of the times it's a very traditional rock and roll song but like you said the head of the song is catchy you know you know what it is instantly yeah so i put some thought into that when i was picking my songs as well and john fogarty's voice yeah. is like there's a lot of anger and out, outrage yeah. and grit in that particular performance absolutely yeah. yeah and it was a double a-side with what song Down on the uh, corner. That, oh, was it? Okay. That's In, quite a one-two punch. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so this is one you guys didn't have. And I wanted to just notice the significance that, that it's a female. Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. Hmm. Blood on the leaves And blood at the root Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze Strange fruit hanging From the poplar tree Released in 1939 This is one of the first racism protest songs to be recorded in popular music. The song's about about lynching, which was very common in, you know, the 1930s and 40s and onward from there even, but the brutality of racism and the practice of lynching, you know, where, where the town would kind of get together and carry out their own form of, of citizen's justice was unspeakable. Basically, they just decide who is guilty and they'd go and they'd act on their own will. There's so many parallels to what we saw in the last four years and this kind of riling people up to the point of frenzy where they decide they're going to take matters into their own hand. So I thought that was a pretty significant tune in the fact that she was a black female singer in the 1930s and 40s, I mean, just the, the act of singing this song, the courage that took. Oh, my God. That was really at the top of my list, for sure. I want to ask you, Will, when you think of your favorite protest singers, is there an artist or a band that jumps out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Neil Young and Rage Against the Machine are my two top Yep. Um, Rage more so because as a teenager, that's when Rage kind of was hitting the scene and, and that angst and anger in, in, their, in their songs was something that I tapped into a lot as a, as a smaller kid in high school. That music just brought me this sense of like... <laughs> Like it was my weapon, you know, I, I'd take it to the to the field with me or to the gym or whatever. And, you know, I was obviously not as acutely aware as I am now of what, what the songs were about. But what's so amazing to me about protest songs is that you can adopt these songs for whatever you're going through at the time, right? Like decades later, the song can speak to something totally different than what it spoke to when it was written. But it's protesting something, right? And so for you, it was in high school. You were using it as a weapon against bullying. But that's totally separate from how the song was written. So that just, it shows the power of songwriters 
and how a song can be used and interpreted differently by a different group of people. It's amazing. A lot of these protest songs that we're talking about are 20, 30, 50, you know, you mentioned Strange Fruit. That's, you know, 80 years old. Yeah. Same, 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 theme. same yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's America's legacy. And, and, uh, until we, you know, own that legacy and rec, you know, we can't begin to reconcile it until we, you know, cause I, I, you see so many people who post, you know, this isn't my, this isn't America. This isn't us. And, uh, you know, I would argue it, it is. And, mm-hmm. and, and the sooner we, um, can come to terms with that, I feel like the, the sooner we can hopefully eradicate or make changes that, that put us in a better direction. But, well, um, Will, you haven't disappointed. If listeners don't know Will Evans' music, check it out. He is a great songwriter, and uh, Clint and I are both big fans. Big fan. Thank you, guys. You guys are, are my favorite podcast right now, so keep doing it. All right. Thanks, Thanks Will. buddy. All right. right. Take guys. care. See ya. Don't ask me about the future. I want to talk about right now. Okay, Clint, on the same day that Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young released the song Ohio, Marvin Gaye is working in Hitsville, USA Studio A, the legendary Motown studio in Detroit. That day, he's tracking the masterpiece song that protests police brutality. The song is What's Going On. Mother, there's too many of you to cry. Marvin Gaye wrote the song with Al Cleveland, who had written the 1967 classic Second That Emotion, and Obie Benson, who was a member of the Four Tops, another Motown act. Benson had been in Berkeley, California the year earlier, and had witnessed the so-called Bloody Thursday, a brutal police crackdown on anti-war activists in the city's People's Park. Benson began writing the song with Cleveland with the plan that the Four Tops would sing it. But the other guys in the Four Tops felt it was too far a departure from their other songs. Songs like, I Can't Help Myself. And Reach Out, I'll Be There. So Benson presents the unfinished song to, to Marvin Gaye in early 1970. And he adds a new melody and some new lyrics. Benson described the songwriting process like this. He and Cleveland measured Marvin Gaye for a suit, and then he tailored the hell out of it. <laughs> the song resonated with Marvin Gaye. He had witnessed the 1965 Watts riots. We talked about the LA riots of 1992. The 1965 Watts riots were a turning point in his life. And he was also deeply affected by his brother Frankie's own experience in the Vietnam War. The production on the song is magical. The Motown house band, the Funk Brothers, including James Jamerson on bass, who was apparently so wasted, he had to play the bass part lying on his back. Wow. The opening soprano sax line was provided by a guy named Eli Fontaine, who apparently was just goofing around. 
And Marvin Gaye said, hey, what's that? And he said, oh, man, I'm just goofing around. And he's like, no, you're not. That was perfect. <laughs> it's it. an incredible song. And there's a talking track, right? There's that track. It's like a party track. It's like a party track. And I use that technique all the time when making records. It's like it creates a vibe. A vibe. Yeah. What do you got, Clint? My next one is going to be by a small Irish band, Uh, U2. So U2 is Bono, The Edge, Larry Mullen Jr., and Adam Clayton. Formed in 1976, they've released 14 studio albums. And the song that I chose is Sunday Bloody Sunday. This is a protest song, but kind of in a different way than what we might think. The song relates entirely to this incident that occurred in 1972 in Derry, where British troops shot and killed unarmed civil rights protesters, much like Ohio. It's kind of a very similar thing. It's the opening track from their 1983 album, War, which is their third album, and was released as the album's third single on March 21st, 1983. Sunday Bloody Sunday, you know, it's got that militaristic drum beat. It's got that unbelievably amazing edge guitar line that every guitar player learns at some point. And super melodic harmonies. It also has that really cool harmonic guitar part in the chorus. Ding, 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 ding. Which, when you're learning guitar, you're like, how do you do that? And so then you figure it out. You're like, I can do it. I'm the edge. This is like U2's most political song. It's not like they were a protest band in the same way like Neil Young or Rage was. It basically describes the troubles, in quotes, in Northern Ireland, which was this three-decade-long conflict between the nationalists, which were mainly self-identified as Irish or Roman Catholic, and the unionists, mainly self-described as British or Protestant. So it's like this basically religious struggle in Northern Ireland for 30 years. And this event that took place in 1972 was like in the middle of it, really, because it ended in the 90s. So at this event... All these people were killed. I think 13 people were killed. Here's where it gets interesting. As a promotional gimmick, U2 manager Paul McGinnis, who has been their longtime manager ever since the beginning, made arrangements for the band to appear in the 1982 St. Patrick's Day Parade. However, he later found out that there was a possibility that Bobby Sands, an IRA hunger striker who had starved to death the previous year, would be the parade's honorary marshal. As they felt that the IRA's tactics were prolonging the fighting in Northern Ireland, McGinnis and the band members mutually decided they should withdraw from the parade. So McGinnis met with one of the parade's organizers in a New York City bar to arrange the cancellation, and ended up in a heated debate about the IRA. McGinnis recalled, He kept telling me to keep my voice down. The place was full of New York policemen and Irish cops, and he thought I was going to get us killed. So the song was written after that meeting. Which is interesting, right? It's taking this 
It's about the event, but that wasn't the impetus for the song. Here's a quote from drummer Larry Mullen Jr. We're into the politics of people. We're not into politics. Like, you talk about Northern Ireland, Sunday Bloody Sunday. People sort of think, oh, that time when 13 Catholics were shot by British soldiers. That's not what the song is about. That's an incident. The most famous incident in Northern Ireland, and it's the strongest way of saying, how long? How long do we have to put up with this? I don't care who's who. Catholics, Protestants, whatever. You know, people are dying every single day through bitterness and hate, and we're saying, why? What's the point? Their whole point of writing this song is not specifically about that event. It's about all the events. So these type of events keep happening. They happen every decade. Does I mean, all the time, these events keep happening. And so that's what Sunday Bloody Sunday is about, as much as it's about this this horrible incident that took place in 1972. It's like their way of saying, stop this. Right. This is our protest against killing around the world always. A protest against the cycle repeating itself. And this idea of how long, how long must we sing this song? How long? Like That's exactly the point you were making earlier, that, that across the decades, there's only a couple plots right. in these protest songs because there's still the need to sing them. Right. Clint, there's a quote that I love that sort of gets at the heart of what we've been saying from the American novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne writing in the 18th century. He's talking about the power of words. He says, so innocent and powerless as they are standing in a dictionary, how potent for good and evil they become in the hands of one who knows how to combine them. So a few honorary mentions of some folks who really knew how to combine them for good. A Change is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. One of the most stirring songs of the civil rights era protest songs. Sam Cooke, sometimes called the King of Soul, recorded the song in January 1964. In some ways, it's a perfect expression of the weary optimism of the civil rights movement. It's been a long time coming, but I know a change is going to come. It became a defining moment in Sam Cooke's career, and it might have had an even greater impact if not for another cultural moment. Alan Klein, Cooke's manager, who would later go on to manage the Beatles as they were breaking up, convinced Cooke to debut the song on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson on February 7th, 1964. It did make an impact, but two days later, the Beatles debuted on Ed Sullivan, and all the eyes of the country turned to the Fab Four. Sam Cooke never performed the song again, and he was shot and killed by the manager of a motel in Los Angeles just nine months later. Let's run through a quick list of honorary mentions. Okay. 
Times They Are a Changing by Bob Dylan, 1964. Big one. Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. Oh, the times they are a changing. Give Peace a Chance, John and Yoko, yep. 1969. I think it's time to give you my my numero uno. Okay. I think the greatest protest song of all time is F the Police by NWA. That would be my vote. Right about now, NWA court is in full effect. Judge Dre resigning. In the case of NWA versus the police department, prosecuting attorneys all. MC Ren, Ice Cube, and Easy Motherfucking E. And here's why. This song comes so deeply out of truth and rage and frustration and just being sick of it and done with it, right? This is as real as it gets. And this is in 1988. This is before Rodney King, right? So Rodney King was in 91. This was in 1988. This song came out on the Straight Outta Compton album, and the lyrics basically protest police brutality and racial profiling. And the song was ranked number 425 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. So, do you know this song well? I mean, I know it. Yeah. I don't know it like our friend John Daly knows it. (laughs) (laughs) You can't recite it verbatim. Um, But but when this song came out, I'll just say quickly, I remember it being so shocking. It changed the world, really. It was the first time, right? It was the first time it had ever been said like this. First of all, it's not just like, I disagree with you. It's F the police. Right. Which just by using the F word in a song at that point, it was pretty amazing. But this is kill the police. <laughs> like, this is like, I'm going to murder the police. And so they're so frustrated. So th- basically the song, if you don't know, it parodies a court proceeding where the producer of the record is Dr. Dre. He is the judge and he's hearing prosecution of the police department. So the three members of the group, Ice Cube, MC Ren and Easy E are taking the stand to testify before the judge as prosecutors. And through the lyrics, the rappers criticize the local police force. Two interludes present reenactments of stereotypical racial profiling and police brutality. So at the end, the jury finds a police department guilty of being a, quote, redneck, white-breaded, chicken-shit MFer. A lot of this is tough to talk about because it's so profane. I mean, right. I can't even read you the lyrics. Right. It would be inappropriate for right. me to read this the This podcast lyrics. would get flagged. Yeah, I don't want that. The interesting part is this song has been potent since 1988. When it debuted, it was shocking. It seems to get less and less shocking Every year, yes. right? Like it now, you kind of believe it. But you're right, especially in the era of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. It just goes back to what we were saying before that, you know, like Bono sings, "How long? How long must we sing this song?" Maybe the only thing that's shocking about this song is that it's still relevant. Right. That you're right. That we're still. Doing the same thing over and over and over again. You talked about it coming from a place of truth. That's it. That's what makes this song 
so moving. Right. Is that it comes from a place like these guys experience that right. that type of brutality. Yep. Dre didn't want to do this song, but then was pulled over and totally harassed. And they were so mad that they went to the studio and wrote the song in one night coming from a complete place of 400 years of oppression. Like they were, they were, they were channeling that rage. Yeah. They were fed up, completely fed up. I don't get the sense in some of these other protest songs that it's that relevant at this very moment. There's when you listen to this song, they are angry. The tone of their voices are, they're just really pissed off. Well, it's different. It's a different thing that they're protesting. But that's what makes Ohio so urgent is that he sees the Life magazine cover. He goes and writes the song. They record it the next day. Right. It's the same. It's a similar yeah. thing. 20 years earlier or 15, whatever. Yeah. Like that's even crazier that it came out that quickly. Right. Written from the same place. But it's not as angry. Neil Young wasn't personally in the situation, right? That's true. These people are, you know... Cube, MC Ren, Easy E, they faced this. That's a great point. It was visceral. It was like, you can hear it in the track. So here's a great quote by Ice Cube. It's our legacy here in America with the police department and any kind of authority figures that have to deal with us on a day-to-day basis. There's usually abuse and violence connected to that interaction. So when F the Police was made in 1988, it was 400 years in the making and it's still just as relevant as it was before it was made. He goes on to say, our music was our only weapon. And this is the point of this the whole the thing. Of this, whole is, episode. this is all they had. So MC Ren says, it seemed like all throughout junior high school, high school, the police would just F with us for no reason. Ren says, it was like if you were black, young, in the hood, in the ghettos of America, you just get f with. What you hear on the record is all the frustration, all the times getting harassed, getting pulled over for no reason at all, getting disrespected, having them try to disrespect your parents all because of your skin color. All of that builds up and you make a record. But we never thought the record would be around today with people still playing the record and into it. But man, to me, it's a perfect protest song. That might be a mic drop. Clint, the song that I'm going to nominate as the greatest protest song of all time is another song that came out on Motown Records, but almost 30 years after Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Fight the Power by Public Enemy. Released on July 4th, 1989. July 4th. The year after... Straight out of Compton. Right? Yeah. The song was commissioned, in a sense, by Spike Lee for his film, Do the Right Thing. He was looking for an anthem, and he asked Chuck D to write one. The result was so much more than a song for a soundtrack. So much more than a rap or hip-hop song, even. And it hasn't lost any of its urgency, impact, or power in the 31 years since it came out. For most casual fans, Public Enemy was Chuck D and Flavor Flav, both from Long Island. Actually, they met at Long Island's Adelphi University in the mid-80s. Chuck put a group together called Chuck D and Spectrum City, into which he recruited Hank Shockley, his brother Keith Shockley, and Eric Vietnam Sadler, who together became known as the Bomb Squad. 
The Bomb Squad served as the production team. They developed the beats and the tracks. And their style was this dense, sometimes angular, super layered samples. The version from the film is actually more jazz-infused. In fact, Branford Marsalis plays the sax solo. There's another sax layer we should have talked about. Oh, yeah, right. Boneheads. Boneheads. The version that came out nine months later for the group's studio album, Fear of a Black Planet, loses the jazz element, but none of its power. The Isley Brothers had a song called Fight the Power. Chuck D said, we wanted to make something that was going to say, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm going to fight the system. So that song that the Isley Brothers did, Fight the Power, resonated, but their version was a little soft. It didn't resonate as deeply as I thought it should, he said. In the song, Chuck D calls out a few cultural icons. He says, Elvis was a hero to most, but he never meant to me. He's calling out Elvis, who owed so much to black artists and was viewed by most people as this unassailable king of rock and roll, the pioneer of rock and roll. And yet he was a guy who stood on the shoulders of so many black artists. He also says, don't worry, be happy was a number one jam. Damn, if I say it, you can slap me right now. As he explained to Rolling Stone magazine, don't worry, be happy doesn't apply to protests. If you're not worried and you're happy, you're like, why protest? Clint, Don't Worry, Be Happy is literally the opposite of a protest song. <laughs> okay. I agree with you there. Public Enemy was inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013. Huh. But there's something about this song. It's raw energy, it's lyrics, but also the sentiment. Fight the power. That is ultimately what a protest song is. Any protest song right. is fight the power. The establishment that is oppressing you. That's my vote for the greatest protest song of all time. So we've each chosen hip-hop songs based on race as the most potent of protest. We didn't choose a war one because it's so current. For me, it, it it's so relevant right now. Maybe if we were in a massive war right now, maybe... That's a really good point. We're both drawn to those two songs because they seem to speak to the times we're living through. Right. And those songs came out in 88 and 89, respectively. Incredible that it's exactly the same. They are the soundtrack for this past year. So wait, did we... I think we did. Did we do it? I think we did it. We want to say thank you again to Will Evans for inspiring the idea and for joining us today. Thank you to the listeners who continue to keep us honest and remind us that at the end of the day, whatever we might achieve, we are still just boneheads. Boneheads. We hope you had as much fun as we did, and we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age-old question.
Follow us on Instagram at The Age Old Question. Facebook, The Age Old Question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. <laughs>